the beginning of this year, Tim asked our ministry staff to read a book called uh, Know What You're For by Jeff Henderson. Uh, it's, a, it's a quick little read, nothing at all like the memoirs of Alexander Campbell. I've got 500 pages left on that book, and I've learned one thing so far. People in the 1800s had way too much time on their hands. Uh, this book you can read in a sitting or two. Uh, you can listen to it on audio. It's a great book. And it's organized around two questions that we need to ask ourselves in order to grow. And this is whether we ask ourselves these questions as a business or a nonprofit organization or a church or just as individuals. The first question is inspiring, exciting, engaging, and visionary. It's the question that we love to ask. The second question is a little discouraging, disheartening, disappointing, and disruptive. It's the question we don't want to ask, but we need to. The two questions are this. One, what do we want to be known for? And two, what are we known for? The first question is a question of vision. This is our big idea, our purpose, our mission. This is why we exist as an organization. This is why we get up in the morning and come to work. The second question is a question of how people experience our vision. How do people understand and engage with our purpose and mission? When those two things align, the organization grows. It, it can't help it. But when those two things don't align, it's not just that the organization doesn't grow, it actually becomes untrustworthy. It opens itself up to charges of false advertising and hypocrisy. As Henderson says in the book, when there's a gap between what you say you want to do and what you actually do, you lose credibility. And that's why the second question is so important and yet so frustrating. Because the second question reveals what people actually think about you, not what you wish they thought about you. It reveals what people actually experience with you, not what you wish they experienced with you. So, if we were to ask those two questions of the church, what would our answers be? And I use the word church here in a, in a broad sense, not just Murray Hills, but the church universal. What do we want to be known for? Well, that's easy. We want to be known for Jesus. We want to be known for His grace, His mercy, His love. We want to be known for taking care of our neighbors and putting others first and treating people in the way that we want to be treated and serving our community. We want to be known as a place where you can belong, where you'll be accepted for who you are, where you are loved more than you can imagine. Now, if that sounds like a church vision statement, it's because church vision statements are full of language like that. Just think about our church's vision statement. We want to be a place where judgment ends and healing begins. Church vision statements talk all about love and acceptance because that's what we want to be known for. But let's ask the second question. What are we known for? If we were to ask people outside the church, what is the church known for? When you hear the word church, what are some words that come to mind? I'm not trying to be cynical here, but I don't think love and acceptance would be the first two words they thought of. I think instead they would think of words like judgmental, narrow-minded, uh, exclusive, anti-science, anti, -science, anti uh, 
gay, anti-intellectual, anti-sex, anti, you know, fill in the blank. The church is anti a lot of things. They would think about the church in terms of rules and regulations and traditions and laws and commands and guilt. Lots and lots of guilt. Now, is there a place for morality? Well, sure. You know, is there a place for talking about righteousness and good behavior? Well, of course there is. But more often than not, the church is known more for what we're against than what we're for. And if there is a gap between what we want to be known for and what we're actually known for, what do we lose? Credibility. Or to put it in the language of this series, we become resistible. I want to suggest a third question for Henderson, especially for churches, because churches are different than businesses and nonprofits. We don't get to choose our mission. We don't get to choose what we want to be known for. God has given us what He wants us to be known for. So what does God want the church to be known for? If we think about this new movement that started with the resurrection of Jesus and changed the entire course of of human history, changed the entire world, what was that movement known for? What made it so irresistible in the first century? And is it possible to reclaim that in the 21st century? Is it possible for us to still be known for the same things today? Well, Jesus answered the question of what should we be known for clearly and concisely in John chapter 13. If you got a Bible with you, go find that passage, John chapter 13, beginning somewhere in verse 30. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the 22nd chapter of Luke. And in that, Luke tells the story of the Passover Jesus shared with his disciples just days before he goes to the cross. This is what we know as the Last Supper. It's where Jesus instituted communion. And one of the things that Luke mentions, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, that Jesus In the institution of communion, he actually talked about a new covenant. And this new covenant would be established through Jesus, uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. It was the fulfillment and replacement of the old covenant. But at this same meal, Jesus also spoke of something else new that he was ushering into the world. And John tells that story. It's in the 13th chapter. We'll start reading at about verse 30. John says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. So this is in the middle of the meal, and Jesus has just predicted Judas' betrayal. He said, the one who who I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish, the one who takes this bread with me, that's the one who will betray me. And he indicated Judas there. Now, the disciples got to be a little confused about exactly what's going on. We know what's going on because we've read the rest of the story. But Judas abruptly leaves this meal and goes out, and John kind of writes in a very poetic sense, it was night. Not just referring to the time of day, but referring to the darkness that was getting ready to fall through the death of Jesus. Verse 31, he says, when he was gone, talking about Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify him at once. Now, that's a little confusing. The the way it's worded, just kind of like, what's he talking about there? He's simply talking about the fact that he's getting ready to go to the cross. When he talks about being glorified, he's talking about his sacrificial death. He says, verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I'll tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. 
And then pay close attention to this next verse, verse 34. We're going to break it down phrase by phrase. He says, a new command I give you. Now, if a new covenant was strange to them, what do you think they thought of when Jesus started talking about a new command? I mean, they had already had enough commands. I mean, there were 613 commands in the law of Moses. The old covenant had enough commands for everybody to go around. They got to be sitting there thinking, we need another command, like we need a hole in the head. (laughs) You know, I mean, plus the Pharisees added commands on top of commands just for good measure. I mean, when he starts talking about a new command, they've got to be thinking the same way that we think. You know, we, we don't need to add any new commands, Jesus. We can't even keep the ones we got now. But the command Jesus was talking about wasn't necessarily new. He says, love one another. That's not a new command in the sense that Leviticus chapter 19, the old law instructed them to love your neighbors as yourself. So when Jesus says, my new command is love one another, well, that, what do you mean? That's, that's not new. That's already evident in the old law. But Jesus was getting ready to redefine and reframe this command just a little bit. Actually, he'd already done it before this. If you'll think back a little bit, this is in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12. You hear about the greatest commandments. There was a teacher of the law that challenged Jesus, and he said, Jesus, you know, what's the greatest command in in the law and the prophets? What is the most important command? And Jesus said, the first one is uh, to love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, that probably wouldn't have been surprising to the people who were listening. They, they would have agreed. Absolutely, that is the first and greatest commandment. But then Jesus said, and the second is like it. That was the new part. They didn't ask for two commands. They asked for one command. And Jesus gave them two commands. And what was new about it was that he combined this commandment to love the Lord your God with the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus basically did was put love for neighbor at the same level of importance with love for God. And then he said, all the law and the prophets hang off of these two commands. That was new too. If you want to demonstrate your love for God, if you want to demonstrate your devotion to God, then love other people. And you want to know what that looks like? He continues, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The basis of our love for neighbor is Jesus. Not a book of law, not a list of commandments, not the old covenant. Jesus is the basis of our love. He basically says the the best way for you to love people is to love them in the way that I have loved you. Jesus is the standard for love. We're familiar with the golden rule, treat other people in the way that we want to be treated. Well, Andy Stanley calls this one the platinum rule here in John 13, 34. It's not just treat other people in the way you want to be treated. It's love other people in the way that Jesus loved us. Forgive other people in the way that Jesus forgave us. Accept other people in the way that Jesus accepted us. And then he adds, verse 35, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's why I said earlier, Jesus answers the question, what should we be known for? Jesus answers it clearly and concisely. We should be known for loving others. 
So what do we want to be known for? We want to be known for loving others. So what are we known for? Well, if we're not known for loving others, then we're doing it wrong. The church should be known for its love for other people because the church is the body of Christ that reflects the love that Jesus has shown us. The loving other people should be the primary identity of the New Testament church. Not our doctrine, not our denomination, not our name, not our creeds, not our worship style, not our list of do's and don'ts, not our theological intellect, not our righteousness. We should be known by our love. This is the defining characteristic of the church. And if we're not known by our love, then we better figure out how to close that gap. We better figure out how to reclaim that new that Jesus unleashed in our world. This is what it all comes down to. This is the new command that Jesus gives us that ushered in his church and that should still define his church in the 21st century. Al Reese uh, is a marketing consultant, wrote a book called Focus, and there's this great story in the book about his work with Burger King. So Burger King had just launched their chicken sandwich and the sales were struggling. And so they called Al Reese and asked him to come in and kind of give them some marketing advice on how to improve chicken sandwich sales at Burger King. And so in the first meeting with all these Burger King executives, Reese is sitting in the room with him and he says, hey, can we go outside? And so they all walk outside and he takes them to the front of the sign at their corporate headquarters there. And the sign says Burger King. And he says, okay, on the count of three, I want you to say the name of the company out loud. So they all oblige, you know, one, two, three, Burger King. And Al says, all right, here's my next question. Why are you selling chicken sandwiches? <laughs> and it was probably the last day that Al worked for the Burger King account, but his point was simple. Stick to your brand. What do you want to be known for? What does your sign say about you? I sometimes wonder if Jesus would like to visit our elders meetings or our staff meetings or our small group meetings and say, can, can we go outside, guys? Can we just go outside and take... What does that sign say? What's the word on that sign? Church? And what, what is that church supposed to be known for? What did I want my disciples to be known for? What did I want them to be their primary identity? What was the new command I gave you? Can we just stick to that? Would you pray with me, please? Father, the church has a long history of uh, messing up your teachings. Your teachings are very clear. They're very simple. They're very concise, but they're very demanding. And this command that you've given us through Jesus to love other people is a very simple command, but also a very demanding command. It's an ethic that we struggle as the church and just as individuals to uphold. So, Father, I pray that you help us as a church to uphold this ethic, to let it be the gold standard, the platinum standard by which we uh, operate as a church, to let it be the gold platinum standard by which we as human beings operate, that we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we seek to love other people in the way that you have loved us. 
Your love for us was complete and it was whole. It was demonstrated more than anything on the cross. And may we always keep that in mind as we seek to share that love with other people. It's through the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. I want to invite you to be back with us next Sunday. We'll be right here, 9.30 on YouTube and Facebook, and we'll be in part five of our irresistible study. Uh, Next week, we're going to try to put some meat on the bones of this command to love one another. What does that look like in real life? You know, when, when Paul got that command and Peter took that and James and John took that, you know, what do they write about how to make that work? In real life because real life gets messy and it's hard to love other people especially those that are hard to love and so what what does the new testament teach us about how to practice this command and how can we recapture that practice not only in the church but in our lives so i want to invite you to, to be back and be a part of that study i hope your small groups are meeting i hope that you'll talk about this in your small groups this afternoon or sometime during the week And uh, we're going to do, as always, we leave the live stream up for five or six minutes just so everybody can say goodbye to one another and check in with one another. Uh, I know you miss seeing each other, and we'll be back together in person soon. So we'll we'll leave this up for a little while so you guys can check in and say goodbye. Uh, Thanks for being with us this week.